If you are an avid podcast listener like me, you've probably listened to the show Dr. Death. When it came out in 2018, it shocked listeners by shining a light on the story of Dr. Dunch and the system failure that allowed him to maim and kill 33 patients in Texas. Now in 2020, journalist and host Laura Beale is back with a new story about a doctor who poisoned his patients with drugs they didn't need to treat a disease they didn't have. A doctor who had over 500 victims before being stopped by the FBI. A doctor who deserves the name given to him by his victims, Dr. Death. Season 2 explores the story of Dr. Farid Fada, who for years diagnosed thousands of patients with cancer. And as one of the most well-respected oncologists in Michigan, his patients believed him. They believed him when he told them they needed chemotherapy, and they believed he would save their lives. But he was lying about everything. I'm about to play you a brief clip from the show, but while you're listening, make sure to subscribe to Dr. Death Season 2 on Apple Podcasts, or you can listen early and ad-free by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app. Download the app today. Imagine you're not feeling well and it won't go away. A little fatigue, some achiness. A loved one tells you, go see a doctor. So, okay, you go to your doctor and you get some blood work done. When the results come back, there are a few questions. Your doctor recommends you go see a specialist. My internal medicine doctor said, you know, hey, I sent my mom to him. He's world-renowned, Sloan Kettering graduate. A specialist who cares, who's attentive. You know, he had these very soulful eyes. Located in a state-of-the-art inviting office. It was a beautiful building, a beautiful office that had this lovely healing garden attached to it. The doctor takes one look at your lab work. He makes a face, and then he says three of the most horrifying words a patient can hear. You have cancer. You're devastated, but you're also grateful because you believe you caught it early and you're being treated by the best. I would say that his education and experience in Michigan is unparalleled, second to none. Dr. Farid Fata is a leading authority in the treatment of cancer in the U.S., Close attention, cutting-edge treatments. My care has been phenomenal. The staff is warm and friendly. The care and the caring has just been amazing. All thanks to Dr. Fareed Fata. Dr. Fata is just a godsend. There should be 150,000 at Dr. Fata's. But fortunately, it will turn out there's only one. Because after months of appointments, hours spent in chemo chairs, poison pumping through your veins, accepting that you might not survive, you learn something that you can barely comprehend. You don't have cancer. You never did. And you're not the only one. I'm Laura Beale, and this is Season 2 of Dr. Death. Since the first season of Dr. Death came out, we've received hundreds of tips about doctors who've abused our medical system. 
I still get a few every week. On season two, we've investigated the story that people have asked us about more than any other. A story about one doctor in Michigan who manipulated the system to terrifying ends and put hundreds of lives at risk. To hear the whole story, subscribe to Dr. Death Season 2 on Apple Podcasts, or you can listen early and ad-free by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app. Download the app today. There were two more murders 15 miles away. We arrived, they found the telephone the weird described by one investigator as reminiscent of a weird religion. A cup of murder. Some crimes are not made famous by the news articles or a startling confession. Some are made famous by well-known writers creating a narrative that explains a crime in black and white to entertain the masses. On October 27, 1928, a man was born who would take part in a family massacre made famous by Truman Capote. So, if you like your coffee hot but your bones chilled, sit back and start your day with a morning cup of murder. Harry Edward Smith was born in Huntington, Nevada on October 27, 1928, but relocated to San Francisco after his mother left his abusive father. He was raised predominantly by his alcoholic mother until, when he was just 13 years old, she choked on her own vomit and died. Perry and his siblings were sent to a Catholic orphanage, where, allegedly, the nuns both physically and emotionally abused him for his lifelong bedwetting problem, a symptom of the malnutrition he suffered from an early age. At some point, Perry reunited with his father, and the two lived together on and off while traveling through the western U.S., with Perry spending much of his time in and out of different juvenile detention centers for petty crimes. When he was 16 years old, he joined the Merchant Marines and, in 1948, joined the Army and served in the Korean War. While serving, Perry spent weeks at a time in the stockade for things like fighting and public carousing. Despite this, he received an honorable discharge in 1952 and was stationed at Fort Lewis in Washington. He attempted to make a life for himself there. He got a job, and with his first paycheck from this new job, he bought himself a motorcycle one that he severely crashed and almost lost his life, instead causing permanent damage to both of his legs and disabling him. He moved back in with his father, but soon found himself on his own after a falling out. So he picked up where he left off and began to escalate from his boyhood petty crimes. He and a partner were caught stealing from a business in Phillipsburg, Kansas, and Perry Smith was sent to Kansas State Penitentiary in Lansing on a five to 10 year prison term. No one could have predicted how this prison stint could have changed so many lives. Because it was here that an infamous pairing was born. It is where Perry Smith met Richard Hickok. Richard, a man who came from a good family with a background that does not usually lend to criminal activity, and Perry were cellmates during his incarceration, striking up a friendship forged in darkness. And when Perry was paroled, the two promised to stay in touch. So when Richard was paroled in 1959, he wrote his old friend and asked him to come back to Kansas and assist him in a robbery that he had been planning. Perry returned to Kansas and reunited with another former inmate named Willie J. But when he found out that Willie had already relocated, he chose to meet up with Richard. Here was Richard's plan. 
He had heard from a cellmate named Floyd Wells that a former employer, a prosperous farmer named Herb Clutter, kept large amounts of cash in his house. This ended up being completely false, but Richard was hooked on the idea. Richard told Perry that they were going to break into the Clutter's safe and start a new life in Mexico. Perry agreed, and the men drove 400 miles across the state of Kansas to the Clutter Farm on November 14, 1959. By the early hours of November 15th, they were in Holcomb and ready to enter the unlocked door to the Clutter home while the family was fast asleep. As they searched for the safe, one that was not there, they awoke the sleeping family. They bound and gagged everyone, which included 48-year-old Herb Clutter, his two youngest children, 16-year-old Nancy and 15-year-old Kenyon, and his 45-year-old wife Bonnie, who, by some accounts, suffered from severe postpartum depression and physical ailments that incapacitated her, and began looking for any valuables or money they could find. They found nothing. That's when the men began to panic and realized that they now had four witnesses to their crime. Perry, who was the more violent and unstable of the two, reacted quickly and slit Herb Clutter's throat and shot him in the head. Next, after Perry stopped Richard from raping Nancy, came the death of the other three members of the family, all shot with a single shotgun blast to the head. When the men left, they had Kenyon's small portable radio, a pair of binoculars, and less than $50 cash instead of the $10,000 they expected. When police finally found the Clutter family, they were floored. No one could figure out what Herb and his family could have possibly done to bring such violent deaths. They spoke to anyone remotely associated with the family, and everyone agreed. No one could figure it out. One even saying, of all the people in the world, the Clutters were the least likely to be murdered. The only real clue they found at the scene was a pair of familiar boot prints whose brand investigators recognized. They kept this information from the press in hopes the murderers would continue wearing them. But as far as the crime scene, the boot print was really all they had. The killers were extremely thorough when cleaning, even collecting their spent shell casings, and left behind a number of valuable items, leaving police scratching their heads for a motive. Why would they leave Bonnie's expensive jewelry and the family's china, but take the teenager's prized little radio? It really made no sense, and it wouldn't be until just before Christmas that investigators finally got a much-needed lead in the case. An inmate from Lansing Prison said he believed he knew who the killers were, ex-cellmates Richard Hickok and Perry Smith. After almost six weeks on the run, the two were captured in Las Vegas, Nevada on December 30, 1959. Once in custody, Perry admitted to cutting the throat of Herb Clutter as well as shooting both he and Kenyon, though there was some dispute over who shot the women. Richard, of course, claimed Perry murdered all four members of the Clutter family. According to later sources, Perry wanted to accept all of the responsibility because he felt sorry for Richard's mother, that she was a sweet person and didn't deserve knowing what Richard really did. And while awaiting execution, a man named Truman Capote came to interview and eventually befriend Perry Smith. This man and his book, In Cold Blood, would eventually make the crime infamous as well as become the second best-selling true crime book in history. The book was published the year after Perry Smith and Richard Hickok were sent to the gallows on April 14, 1965. 
Nearly 50 years after the execution, the bodies of Perry and Richard were exhumed in hopes of solving a 53-year-old murder in Osprey, Florida using their DNA. Only partial DNA could be retrieved and neither proved nor disproved their involvement in the crime, but they do remain viable suspects. And one last interesting fact, Truman Capote's In Cold Blood spawned three movie adaptations, one of which had Robert Blake starring as the unhinged Perry Smith. Robert, as you may remember, is the man who was tried and acquitted of his wife, Bonnie Lee Blakely's murder. Thank you for joining me in my morning cup of murder. Please join me again tomorrow to hear what terrible thing happened on October 28th. Don't forget to rate and subscribe and let me know how you like it. If you want to help support the podcast, there's always Patreon or just sharing it with your true crime obsessed friends. And remember, stay safe.